The following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. We finish up an 18-week series through the book of 1 Peter today, and this message is clear. Peter's message as he closes is clear, and so my message to you is simple. It's going to be clear and simple. At least that's my intention. And here is the message. Don't check out. Don't check out. Don't give up. Stand firm. Stay strong. Now, why does Peter need to say something like this? Because I'm going to tell you something that might seem no surprise to you. Following Jesus is difficult. Being a follower of Jesus is tiresome. It will lead to weariness, to fatigue, to boredom. You will be tempted to fatigue. You'll be tempted to take a break, to rest from it all. If you do not grow, in if you do not grow weary in pursuing Jesus, then you're doing it wrong. If you don't get tired of living a life for Christ and obedient to Christ, then you're doing it wrong. If you're not saying, "Hey, this whole," if you're saying this whole dying to sin and living to righteousness, this is easy. It's not, and you're doing it wrong. If everyone loves you, if you don't have an enemy in the world, if no one ever disagrees with you, then it's possible you've never been courageous for your faith. You've never stood up for Christ. You've never taken one on the chin for Jesus, so to speak. We're tempted. We're tempted to abdicate our mission and to let someone else deal with it. We're tempted to think, yeah, the world is a mess. Someone else will deal with it. Someone else will figure it out. Let someone else deal with the struggle of daily relationship with God, daily growth, daily pursuit of the gospel. Let someone else deal with the stress of leadership. Let someone else be the, the perfect godly husband or wife. Let someone else uh, be a, a compassionate citizen. Let someone else do that. This is a lot of work. Let someone else deal with the working of letting the gospel change their marriage or their, shape their social relationships, or shape their church participation, or shape their heart. Frankly, it's hard work, isn't it? We're tempted to fatigue. And so let's rewind, shall we, to week one. Week one of our series in the first couple verses of First Peter, remembering what this is all about and what he was saying. The early church that Peter writes to, they were confused, they were struggling, they were discouraged by their position and culture. And what was their position and culture? They were being further marginalized in the culture. They were being pushed out of society. Their values were not welcome. Their views were mocked. Their perspectives were labeled as foolish. Yeah, there's these new Christians and these are their ideas and they were pushed out to where they had a very limited economic position. They were losing honor. And so Peter responds with this letter. And he says, there is a way. There is a way for Christians to maintain their allegiance and love for Jesus and to engage fully in culture with compassion. There is a way to do both. You do not have to sell your soul in order to be a witness. You do not have to uh, accommodate everybody in your life and lose your witness. You can love Jesus. You can follow Him. You can honor Him. And you can still love those in the world and have compassion for those hurting. 
you can still be a part of the culture without giving up your faith. And so Peter's final message is clear. Don't check out. Stand firm. Stand firm in it, he says. What is it? It is the true grace of God that is applied in, in different ways throughout his letter. But it's the true grace of God as he, he references here in his closing. Why does he say, what does he say about the true grace of God? And it's probably most clearly stated in chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. Peter is saying this is the true grace of God. Jesus died for us. He died for our sins. And we're healed by his wounds so that we can live to righteousness. And so what the aim of this entire letter of all five chapters is, is that we can, it's possible, and we ought to live our life out of and in perspective in this kind of view of Jesus dying for our sins. Jesus died for you in your place. And this should change your work. Jesus died for you in your place, and this should change your marriage, chapter 3. Jesus died for you in your place, and this should change your cultural perspective on, on issues in, in, as it relates to ethics and morality, chapter 1. Jesus died for you in your place, that you should, it should change your participation in, in those who have, are in a place of authority over you, like the government and work, and that's in chapter 2. Jesus died for you in your place, and this should change the way you spend your personal time reflecting on the Word, digging into Scripture, as Peter references, like craving spiritual milk. We should grow. And so the fact that Jesus died for our sins should change everything in our life. And Peter says, stand firm in this, in this perspective, applying the gospel, the true gospel. So towards that end, he addresses two anti-gospel attitudes that we often think are harmless in our life, but are actually cause great harm in our life. They're harmless. I mean, they're not harmless. And if we desire to be strong in our faith, we have to call them out and be honest about them. And there are two things, and he calls them out. He says pride and anxiety. You know, two harmless things that we think in our life. Yeah, sure, I, I worry in my life, but doesn't everybody? Everybody's worried. Everybody has anxiety. Everybody has cares in the world. And pride, well, sure, like, I have confidence. I think that I'm good and I'm working on things. But he talks about these things as anti-gospel attitudes. And first, he looks at pride. And I'm exercising some real restraint here because this final sermon is, a, I guess, a recap of the whole book. It's a, it's, a, it's a conclusion, but I'm so tempted to add like three more weeks to our sermon series, but I won't because we can't. We've got to keep going, but I really want to. This passage is so good. Pride is the anti-grace. C.S. Lewis says pride is the anti-God state of mind. Pride is anti-God because pride says, I can do this. I can do this. And it's so contrary. Humility is in opposition, in direct opposition to the idea that I can do this. I got this. I can please God. I can be good enough. Why? Because pride blocks the very blessing that God desires to extend to us. Pride blocks the very grace that God wants to give to us. I said last week that the that the Christian church, the Christians are, by definition, 
humble people. They're, you cannot be a Christian without an act of humility. There's never been a Christian who was not humble. That's pretty bold to say, isn't it? That's part of my job as a pastor is to say just like bold comments like that. There has never been a Christian who has ever lived, ever, who was not humble. How do I know? I haven't met everyone. I haven't gotten to know every one of you. How could I say that? Because humility, it is humility that allows a person to resign their claim of self-salvation. It is humility that allows a person to say, I need God. It takes humility that allows a person to say, God, will you accept me based on what you have done for me? Not because of my record. Will you accept me? Will you have mercy on me? This is a cry of genuine saving faith that we love God for who he is and what he has done for us. And it takes humility to do that. The heart of Christianity is not, I once was bad, but now I'm good. Why are you a Christian? Well, I once did a lot of bad things in my life. I sinned a lot. I partied a lot. I fooled around a lot, but I've cleaned up my act. The heart of Christianity is not, I once was bad, but now I'm not as bad. The heart of Christianity is not, I once was a bad person, but now I'm not as bad as that person. The heart of Christianity is 1 Peter 2, 24, by his wounds I am healed. The heart of Christianity is, Jesus died in my place. Jesus took my sin. Jesus was betrayed for me so that I could be accepted. It takes humility to say, you did this for me because I needed this. You did something for me that I could not do for myself. Pride says, you know, this salvation stuff, this dying for my sins stuff, this, this all sounds really good, but I'm not hopeless. I'm doing okay. I work hard. I'm a pretty good person. I'm not hopeless. God is not angry with me. But Peter says, by his wounds we are healed. So that we could die to sin and live to righteousness. This means that God's wrath was coming to us. It was coming to us like a freight train. And Jesus derailed it by absorbing it in his own flesh. It takes humility to say, well, then I must be pretty far off if I deserve that. True humility is, is really a, it's a truly distinctive Christian virtue. Uh, I've mentioned this quote before in a series, and in this series, and that is uh, by C.S. Lewis again, that true humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. You know, so thinking less of yourself, we often think humility, a person who's humble, is someone who's really just thinking less of themselves, or sorry, thinking of themselves less. No way, I don't know which one it was. <laughs> thinking less of themselves, and that is, I'm a horrible person, I don't deserve this, I'm not a good person, I'm not a good woman, I'm not a good wife. And we look at that person and say, wow, she's really humble, right? That's not humility, that's self-hate. 
That's not thinking of yourself less. That's hating yourself for who you are. Humility is thinking less of your, thinking of yourself less, not thinking of your wounds, not thinking of your baggage, not thinking of your shortcomings, trusting in God, having confidence in Christ, His acceptance of you. Humility then is not hating yourself, but taking yourself actually out of the center. You see, someone who says, I'm a horrible person, I shouldn't be blessed, I don't deserve any of this. In a weird way, that's pride. That's still putting themselves in the center and saying, it's all still about me. But it's not about the good things I do, it's about the bad things I do. And that person is still at the center. Humility is taking yourself out of the center and putting Christ where he belongs, at the center. So you can see how pride is really the anti-God state of mind. It's putting ourselves where God wants to be. God ought to be at the center of our life. God ought to be the the content of our conversation, the context of our joy. God ought to be the content of, of, of our thoughts and our desires and our passion and our dreams and our hopes. He ought to be at the center. Pride, then, is really trying to be God. Pride is saying, it really does boil down to me. It boils down to my choice. It boils down to my work. It boils down to my record of righteousness. And God is saying, I oppose the proud because no one gets to be me except me. So you wanting to save yourself, to make it about you, you're trying to be me and no one can be me. So God says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Why? So that he may exalt you. Because God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And pride leads to anxiety. And that's why Peter puts them together here in in kind of a a two-sided coin. Pride and anxiety go together and they create a situation where we don't trust God. We worry if he truly cares for us. Pride is a result of thinking that we do not need God's grace. So pride is thinking, I don't need God's grace. Anxiety is a result of believing that we don't, that God does not care for us. So pride says, I am good enough, I don't need God. Anxiety says, God doesn't care for me. God doesn't love me. Anxiety is a stab at the integrity of God's love for us. Anxiety and worry is us telling God, I don't believe what you say. I don't believe you care. I don't believe that you love me. So what can we do? What can we do in the face of this? Peter says anxiety stems from from an overconfidence in your ability or someone else's ability to meet your needs and to care for you. Consider your spouse. You think, well, I'm anxious, I'm worried, but at least I can cast my cares on my spouse He or she will be there for me. They will support me. They will lift me up. They will encourage me when I am down. And I don't have to tell you. It doesn't take long to realize that they let you down, that they fall short, that they cannot be and are not a person that can be truly, that you can truly cast your cares on them fully because they will mess up. They are weak. Consider your friends. You might think at least you have friends. At least you have a network of, of support, of people who love and understand you. They're with you in, through thick and thin. But you know, friends move away. And friends die. And friendships drift apart for many different reasons. And then you think, but at least I have the apple of my eye. I have my children. 
If I want to feel selfless and humble, I have my children. I will pour my life out for them, and, and I have them. They, they, they are my identity, and, and I feel as a mom or a dad that I have, they will care for me. And if you believe that, then start saving up now for therapy. Because <laughs> they will need it. If you put your children where God desires to be, you will mess them up so bad. We can't put anybody where God desires it to be. We cannot put our spouse, we cannot put our friends, we cannot put our children. And so our ability to be humble, our ability to cast our anxieties, to rest in a confidence that God cares for us, this is what this means. He says, cast your anxieties upon him for he cares for you. He will not change his mind about you. He will not go in a different direction from his promises to you. Cast your anxieties on God because he cares for you. Do you believe that he cares for you? And not in a buddy-buddy kind of way. He cares for me. I know he cares for me. You know, why do you tell someone that you care for them? Think about it. Think of the ways that you tell someone, I care for you. Because you're afraid to tell them that you love them. Isn't that right? I just want you to know I care for you so much. Usually you say that because you, you aren't ready to make a commitment. You don't really love them. You don't want to say you love them, so you care for them. It's a way for guys to test the waters with a girl, right? I care for you. What is she going to say back? You know, it's an insecurity. That's not what's going on here. God cares for us so much that we can cast, and he says, like, you can dump it all on me. I mean, you can cast it all off on me. You can throw all your worries, all your cares, because my care for you is actually an overflow of my love for you. I love you so much. He takes our cares, he takes our struggles, and he says, throw them my way. Everything. I mean, there's nothing that God says, yeah, you know what, that, that's a tricky one. That's a sticky one. Let's work through that. Let's go back to the drawing board. We'll figure this out together. God says, you can throw it to me because I care for you. My son and I, Cohen, we were listening to the radio and listening to a song that came on. and The lyrics go like this. My God is so great, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. That's right. And I think it was, uh, I think it was a cucumber that sang that or something. I don't know. Yes. So, God, so, so Cohen says, this is brilliant. He go in, Cohen says, what does that mean? God can't do anything? God can't do anything? That's weird. What does that mean that God can't do anything? I say, no, no, not God can't do anything. There's nothing he can't do. So that means God can do everything. And he says, what does it mean that God can do everything? And I, and I thought, I said, it means that there is nothing impossible for God. And he gets oh, mouth open, eyes wide, right? Because he knows what impossible means. We've talked about impossible. About six months ago, we talked about impossible and we tested it out. And so we used a lot of analogies and he had to guess if it was a possibility that it would happen or not, you know. And he's trying, he's doing good. He's nine times out of ten, he's doing pretty good. So I said, Cohen, it's time for dinner. That's impossible. It's like, well, he's not using it right. But he's, he's figuring out what it means. He gets it pretty good. And I said, Cohen, there's nothing impossible for God. And I say that. He knows what it means. And so I say, there's nothing impossible for God. 
Cohen's eyes go up to the corner of his mind, and I know what he's doing. He's thinking of the most impossible thing he can think of because he's about to ask me, can God do this? And he thinks, and about 15 seconds later, he says, Dad, can God jump over a tree? And I say, yes. And he says, cool. Let me tell you something. We think like children. We think like children when we think about what God can do. We're childish. Our best at describing God's power sounds like a child. Now, we look at that, and it sounds silly. Of course, he could jump over a tree, you silly kid. I mean, haven't you read your Bible? But he's thinking the most amazing, most impossible thing that he cannot do. That would be so amazing if his, in his eyes. If God can do that, then God is great. And he says, can he jump over a tree? And you, as an adult, you think, that's what you came up with? Imagine how God thinks of our ideas. When we say, God, nothing's impossible, but can... Can you fix my marriage? And God says, that's, that's cute. That's silly. That's the best you came up with. God, can you provide for my needs as I'm unemployed? Oh, aren't you special? I was tempted to give Cohen this uh, a theology lesson right there on the spot to talk about the omnipresence of God, that God doesn't occupy any one space, but that he is everywhere at all times. And that, so the idea of God jumping over the tree is somewhat, uh, somewhat an odd, odd way of describing it. But instead, I indulged his childish thinking and encouraged him, his excitement, his joy, in thinking of the most obscene thing in the world if anyone could do that, they must be pretty amazing. And I said, yes, he can do it. Our reasoning is somewhat childish and ludicrous to God too. And of course, he says, I care for you. He says, of course I can jump over the tree, but you're thinking about it in the wrong way. You're thinking one-dimensional. You're thinking you jump over trees, and so, or you can't jump over trees, so if God can jump over trees, so you're thinking one-dimensional. And God says, you're thinking about it all wrong. Well, sure, I can jump over a tree if I wanted to, but I could also bring that tree low. And just step over it. I could, I could cause that tree to not exist altogether. I can, you're not thinking like I'm thinking. The God of grace is gracious. The God of grace, the true grace, is, is there's nothing impossible for God. The God of grace specializes in unmerited favor to his children. Don't check out. Don't give up. Recognize that your best effort at anticipating God's blessing and power in your life is so childish. There's nothing impossible for God. When the Lord is behind everything, then everything changes. And so when we think about our world, we say, but this is, this is tough. It is hard to be a Christian today. And the similar things were going on uh, when this letter was written in the first century, that are going on today when Christians are being marginalized for their beliefs, when their morality was being challenged, when they were, they were losing economic position and honor in their culture, where the, just the mere confession of being a Christian will get you to, to be mocked and to lose friends. 
and to be ridiculed. He's saying, don't give up. Stand firm. He's saying allegiance to Jesus changes everything. And that's scary. The opposite of standing firm is to abdicate, is to give up the effort to live as God's called us to live in the world with our allegiance to Jesus, yet firmly engaged in the culture with compassion. To abdicate is to give up that effort because of outside pressure, because of inside fear and worry. It's to check out, and to possibly even worse than checking out is to, is to actually assimilate. God, I'm afraid of being a Christian today. Not because I feel like I'm going I'm to lose my life, but I'm going to lose my honor. I'm going to lose my integrity. I'm going to lose my standing in society. I'll be embarrassed. What if I am a lead, uh, trust in Jesus and glorify Him in my and what you have to say about sexual morality. What if I maintain a biblical worldview as it relates to power and money and marriage and relationships and, and work? What if I don't make work my God and I actually say no to my boss or, or my coworkers? God, if I follow you, there is no area of my life that is not vulnerable to attack. There's these fears, and we worry. And God says, cast your anxieties on me because I care for you and stand firm. There's nothing impossible for God. And Peter even says, if you form your views about life and anything in it as a response to your love for Jesus and a biblical view of morality or anything else, you will face trouble. And remember a couple weeks ago we talked about this. He says, don't be surprised. It's coming your way. Don't be surprised when you're ridiculed. And Jesus says to his disciples, in this world you have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Yes, I can jump over the tree. Yes, I can bring the tree low. Yes, I can make it cease to exist. I'm in control. The grace of God will allow us to fall so in love with Jesus that his opinion on any given topic, any given subject, will be our greatest priority and greatest influence. Do you see that? When we love him so much, his view, what Jesus desires, what is important to him, will be our priority, and we will not be afraid of pursuing it. So this, this letter, 1 Peter, is about cultural engagement. It's about pursuing Jesus and loving people who are ungodly, who do not know God. It is inviting Christians at the time to take a step back and ask themselves, what does the culture desire to define for me? What does the culture desire for me to believe and embrace? What is the culture telling me to do? And these confusions offer an opportunity for Christians to reclaim a gospel vision for their life that has long been blurry, that is currently blurry, in our world. So be alert. Be alert, he says. Be alert. Why does he say be alert in our passage? He says, be alert for the devil is real. The devil's prowling a lion like a, like a, around like a lion. He's seeking to devour you, seeking to tempt you and to destroy you. The devil is real and incredibly powerful. He is more powerful than you. 
The devil's more powerful than you. He is a personal force of supernatural power much greater than you can imagine. You see, we think of the devil a lot as this, uh, you know, the good and evil, right? We see the, the, when we're tempted, we see the angel pop up on our shoulder that's encouraging us, and, and that angel's just like a bore, right? And then we see the devil the little, pop up, and he's exciting and fun, and he's tempting us, and we know that. And we're like, all we need to do is just flick him away, and it's fine. The devil is more powerful. He's a supernatural force of power that you don't even, you can't even grasp. Uh... We think of him sometimes as like a nuisance at best. He's just a bother, and we don't need to listen to him. He's the little guy on your shoulder. And if you love Jesus, the devil has one aim, and that's to destroy you. This isn't, and this isn't a trailer for a new like, movie or anything. This is real life. If you love Jesus and desire to grow in your faith, he has one aim, and that's to destroy you. What does is, what is God's assurance give to us? He says, you will be vindicated. In verse 10, he will restore, he will confirm, he will strengthen, he will establish. These are great words. These four words as they flow out of this, as he ends this passage, he will restore, he will confirm, he will strengthen, he will establish you according to his grace. The God of grace is gracious to you. Peter is saying, this is how God acts. Trust him. Nothing is impossible for him. Stand firm. Be on guard. In your bulletin, I put a little card and they tend to fall out, I guess, you know, as we kind of are moving about the day. But this little bookmark, if you, if you have a bulletin, we actually have some extra on the welcome table out there uh, in the welcome area. But I want you to look at this, and, and, and this is to kind of conclude our series, our long series in the book of First Peter. And it just says, stand firm because. And on the front and back, there are verses that go through the entire book that we have covered in these 18 weeks. And these are God's reasons for you, why you can stand firm. Stand firm because, and if you look through these, it is one verse after another of encouragement, of reminder, of, of strengthening, the way that God desires to, to restore you and confirm you and strengthen you and establish you in your faith. Because being a Christian and following Jesus is wearisome. We are prone to fatigue. We are prone to abdicate. We are prone to say, this is tough work. And then you pick this up, God's word, and you say, I'm being guarded through faith by God and His power. He keeps my faith in heaven. So when I am faithless, when my character weakens, God still holds on to me. In verse 18 of chapter 1, I was ransomed by Jesus' blood. He forgives me. I belong to God. He bore my sins. By His wounds I have been healed. God gives me the strength that I need to get through the day. We will participate with Jesus in his glory one day when he returns. Can you just like read through these? And Peter, if we, we go through it slowly over 18 weeks and we don't see it, but you see like a summary like this and it's just like, he is just one punch after another. He's saying, stand firm. You have great reason to stand firm. God loves you. He cares for you. He holds your faith. He protects you. You will not be put to shame even if you're mocked and ridiculed 
He's guarding you. He will restore you. He won't give up on you. He's, nothing is impossible for him. I mean, one after another, it is this book that is just like chock full of promises and truth of who God is. So brothers and sisters and friends, and stand firm. Don't check out. And you're going to forget, you know, next week is Mother's Day and we're going to move on from here. And the week after that, we're going to enter into a new series and work through God's scripture. And you're going to be tempted. And, and, and the strength of, of our teaching time through 1 Peter is going to drift away. You need to stand firm. You need to keep coming back to God's word, coming back to his power and his love for you. He supplies for us the strength that we need to go on. And he loves you very much. Cast your cares on him. Let's pray.